0: Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio, your climate change podcast.
1: In this show, we highlight people's stories. We celebrate your successes.
0: And together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm Peterson Toscano.
1: And I'm Lila Powell. This is episode 81 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, February 24th, 2023.
0: I'm so happy to welcome Lila Powell as this month's co-host
1: hi everyone as you heard my name is lila and i'm excited to be co-hosting today here's what peterson and i have for you today
0: i went for a walk in the woods to interview writer Lilis mellon Ginyard. as a young woman Lilith spent a lot of time alone in remote wilderness she wrote about her experiences in her memoir when everything beyond the wall is wild being a woman outdoors in america
1: These wild spaces have prepared her for climate change. Also, a group of women will join me to share our own experiences of being in nature.
0: Poet Hilla Ratsabi unpacks a poem from her collection, There Are Still Woods. What she shared with me completely altered my relationship with nature.
1: We allow it to be in the background and we think that our lives are the foreground. Tamara Staten, our resident resilience expert, wraps up her series on the five key steps to resilience. But first, Peterson, I heard you've been walking in the woods with poets?
0: Well, one poet, actually. Lilis Mellon Ginyard. We didn't talk poetry, though. Lilis published a memoir about the many ways she was alone in the wilderness. For about two hours this past October, Lilis and I walked the Toshers Trail in Hill Creek State Park in northern Pennsylvania. It was one of those, like, perfect autumn days. I started the conversation by asking her to describe herself, and it it just went from there.
2: I am a poet, a nonfiction writer. I've been a teacher. I've done all sorts of outdoor things. I like to get wild in the arts and in outdoor recreation. And every once in a while, shake things up at adult Sunday school.
0: You have spent a lot of time in wilderness, not just like the woods, but like wilderness, like literal wilderness and wild spaces, natural spaces. What percentage of that time that you've been in wild spaces and nature has been alone?
2: And by alone, I would say me and my dog, because in my twenties, that's how I traveled and lived in my truck and did things. I mean, if I was whitewater paddling, I was always with somebody. But if I was backpacking or hiking, it was always me and my dog, or just running out to camp in the car to car camp. If you know, if I was dating somebody who was ghosting me, which is not what we said then, but you know, didn't call, and of course she didn't have <laughs> cell phones, and you know, you had those terrible answering machines, and so you couldn't leave home if you wanted to get. And then, and then I'd be pissed that I'd waited at home you know, for a call that never came. And I'd pack the dog up and throw the sleeping bag in the back of my truck and just, I mean, I was lucky to be where there was lots of national forest and stuff and just drive and drive and drive until I pulled off on the side of the road and camped out and went, huh, now you can't find me, you know, and and I'm where I can't think about the phone.
0: Back in the day when you would let people know you were going away on a little (laughs) trip, a camping Mm -hmm. trip or something by yourself, what sort of responses and reactions did you get from people
2: afterwards people would say things like oh you're so brave or oh you're so stupid what the heck are you doing (laughs) with that that's crazy and I was so confused by these various responses (laughs) I'm like well which am I and you know because I was raised as most women I think to look for outer acknowledgement of what I was doing instead of learning how to assess risk for myself, you know, and, and, and how does one do that? And so it took a lot to figure out that all those reactions and the ones that were like, yeah, so what? Like, then those would really confuse me. I'm like, but what, wait, isn't this a big deal one way or another? And they're like, no, you know, and I was like, what does this mean that there are so many responses that happen multiple times to these actions and that's probably what set me on some of the questions that i was pursuing that ended up in the book
0: what is the name of your book and give us a little synopsis (laughs) of like uh yeah what, what is the book about
2: okay so it's called when everything beyond the walls is wild being a woman outdoors in america walls and wild have lots of different meanings and connotations. They're either restraining or they're wonderful, like they keep you protected. Like it depends, it's one of those things. Again, it's about your perspective, how you read that. Do, is wild, wild spaces, is that wonderful or is that scary? And so that's what I was playing with. I've experienced both kind of ends of the spectrum simultaneously when I'm out. In the 80s, we were very aware, you were asking for it, right? Mm. And the it is the same as in doing it. Mm. So I didn't want to be that person, but I also didn't want to just get in a relationship with a guy because he was outdoorsy and that would give me access to the spaces and activities I wanted to do, quote unquote, safely. Although that's, if you don't really know the guy, right, that can be, you're actually walking into a less safe space. It's, so I was unpacking all this stuff. The, the, the messages that say women are less safe in public spaces, especially outdoors. That's bullshit. I don't know. I probably can't say that. That's just bunk, because most of the violent crime against women happens in the home. Happens with people you know, or familiar with, and in familiar spaces. So that's, you know, so then you're like, well, what are these messages from society? Where did they come from? Are they really trying to keep us safe? Or are they, ooh, trying to keep us in a place, indoors? controlled, domesticated. And I was like, ah, okay, done with that. (laughs) So, you know, but it took a lot of unpacking. And that's what the book allowed me to do through telling the stories of doing things that were really fun. I'm not the best at anything. I didn't do something nobody had ever done before. I'd never be an outside magazine, you know? And I thought, oh, that's the point. That's why I should write about my stuff. Because we don't get those stories.
0: So thinking back to when you started in your 20s to today, what's changed and what remains the same?
2: Well, I'll tell you, there are a lot more women, a lot more mothers with kids, a lot more people who are older on the trails, on the rivers, on the bike trails. We see so many like women getting together with their 80-year-old dad to bike the rail trail for Father's Day for instance, and they've flown in, you know, they've got families and everything, and these daughters have flown in from all corners and met their father, and then they all drove an hour or two to get to this rail trail here in Pennsylvania, so they could do that. And he's been working on it, and that is amazing to me. That just really, and to see a mother out there with kids, their daughters, who know more than the young men in the van. You get to talk to them and you're like, oh, And that's the group that lasted the whole rainy Memorial Day weekend when all the other groups bailed. It's not because they were tougher. They knew more, planned, prepared, didn't have ridiculous expectations, and, you know, had the right gear. And it was so funny, because on their posts later, they said, I won't say this was enjoyable or fun, but we did it, we learned from it, we know we can do it, so now, you know, the prep that we were doing for this other trip, Now, psychologically and everything else, we're ready. That's brilliant. I mean, that's when I was wandering around, you know, in the woods or, you know, driving across country. That's what I wanted to find, people like that to talk to because I had been totally indoctrinated that you can't go up to the guys and just say hi or anything because everything's an invitation, right? It was the 80s. It was Anita Hill. It was like, you don't do that. I'm like, okay, me and my dog, we're just going to be here by ourselves here.
0: You've also had this journey at an extraordinary time in history with the climate changing rapidly Mm -hmm. over our heads all around us. What Mm -hmm. are lessons that you've learned from your time in the woods and from your time learning? What are lessons that you can apply for us to know about climate change and how to respond to
2: it? All the things that I learned about risk assessment and planning and preparing for going out, especially solo, and into areas where I couldn't control everything has really shaped my ability, I think, to cope with the news, with the expectations, with the, you know, all this talk about mitigation and adaptation and, you know, what do we really need to worry about? Well, I mean, one of the big things that doesn't get said often enough is that climate change in areas there will be winners and losers. You know, some areas will suddenly get a more mild, you know, climate. Around here, it'll be more mild in terms of temperatures. We're gonna have extreme weather, you know, but we might have a longer growing season for some things right? Um, But we might lose the maple syrup. We're gaining poison ivy. You know there's so there's this risk assessment there there's always stuff shifting and it's different for different areas. So to be able to say well I have learned to find joy in environments and experiences where the whole point is I can't control everything. I think that's huge because what we need to do is figure out where to keep finding joy and connect that with the natural world and with each other so no matter what happens we're still on a daily basis able to tap into that
1: that was writer lillis millen speaking with citizens climate radio host peterson toscano her memoir is "When Everything Beyond the Walls Is Wild: Being a Woman Outdoors in America." Learn more about Lillis's work at her website, tentofonesown.com. That's tentofonesown.com. In anticipation of this episode, we ask women to leave voicemails to share their experiences in nature.
3: Hi, my name is Corinne mazur I live outside of Philadelphia in the countryside. I wanted to tell you about my experience in college. In 1972, when I was 17, I went to Prescott College in Prescott, Arizona, and I went on a freshman orientation trip that was a month long. About 12 of us in the group were led by three, actually, college juniors and seniors. We went to the um, Colorado Rockies. We did some rock climbing and a month of hiking. And for three days, we were each given a solo site and spent those days alone with no food and no supplies other than a sleeping bag, a few matches, a knife, and I think we were allowed to take a pen and some paper. And that was one of the best experiences of my life. I never thought that I could have done something like that. I will never forget the experience. It wasn't easy. It was scary, but it was totally survivable. I benefited from the whole month, and especially from that solo experience. This is Karen Fresnel, also known as Red Crow. Basically, as a geologist for 35 years, I transitioned while I was on the job. I spent a lot of time, both pre- and post-transition, in the forests and hills of, and mountains of California. It was different. Definitely after transition, it was decidedly different, especially on those times when I would run across somebody camping or living out in the forests or in the hills or coming across an illegal dope girl. Uh, Those got even more entertaining, especially the ones I transitioned to being Karen. Thank
0: you for your stories. Lila, you and your fellow Citizens Climate Radio team member, Ruth Abraham, also recorded stories about your experiences in the wild.
1: Yep. I'll play Ruth's first and then mine. Most of my experiences with nature have been in group or community settings. But I remember fondly my way of resetting after a long week of classes was to make the short trek out onto a trail nearby campus and onto the gazebo. This was my safe space. Here I was able to set up and collapse into a hammock and see the outlines of mountains for as far as the eyes could see. These Friday afternoon sessions allowed me to collect my thoughts and restore stillness into my life. With the mid-afternoon sun beaming on me, I was able to recollect, regroup, reset, and refresh before the weekend of work and social commitments to come. Nature has this restorative ability on me. It allowed for me to be in isolation in the most powerful context possible. In college, I spent a lot of time going on walks in nearby woods just to clear my head or to think and sometimes to avoid doing homework. Spending that quality time outside and with myself really helped me to find solace in being alone. It gave me time to get to know myself better. I got a new appreciation for the world around me and I found beauty in the simpler things in nature. Squirrels chasing each other in the trees, colorful flowers popping up along the trails, things I never would have noticed without setting time aside to be mindful. Spending time alone outside is rejuvenating. It's something I think everyone should experience, and it doesn't have to be a hardcore hike or a long camping trip. It could be an hour walk after work or school. Being alone in the wilderness can be uncomfortable and even scary. I'd recommend taking it slow, starting in a place where you're more comfortable, maybe a park in your neighborhood or visiting a new place with a friend before braving it alone. This week, I challenge you to go outside, reconnect with yourself, and take the time to smell the flowers. Now it's time for the art house. Born in Israel, poet Hilla Ritzabi longed to be in nature, but grew up in a big American city.
4: I grew up in Queens where I didn't feel like we had a lot of nature per se around, we had the park. But I always imagined, you know, what it would be like if we lived on a farm or, you know, kind of had these like pastoral ideas. And that was always deeply connected to the impulse to
1: write and also to paint and to create. She felt disconnected from the changes in the climate that had already affected many parts of the world. That was until 2012, when Hurricane Sandy barreled into New York and New Jersey. Already
4: I was starting to read more about climate change and, you know, it was starting to be more in the news and more widely talked about. But the experience of living through the hurricane, the three days of where it was like happening, oh, is the tree across the street going to go flying through the wind? You know, just like all the thoughts that went through my head, thinking about my parents in Queens and hoping they were okay. And in the end they were fine, but it was like block by block, you know, who was okay.
0: In her book of poetry, There Are Still Woods, Hilla Ratsabi sits with her feelings, ideas, and wonderings about climate change and its impact on the natural world. Like Hilla, earlier in life as a New Yorker, I felt disconnected, apart from nature. I longed to get closer to it, to become part of nature, maybe even become one with nature. Speaking with Hilla though, I had a revelation. I am nature. It was such a wild thought because my everyday life doesn't seem natural at all. I mean, I'm not like a forest. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that even nature itself is no longer pure and untouched. It's also out of balance.
4: What happens when you are very close to nature and you actually just kind of sit there um, or you walk or whatever it is you're doing And you allow yourself to just receive and be present to what is there. It's so alive. To get really close to that experience is spiritual.
0: I asked Hilla to help us go deep into one of her poems. She agreed to reveal her process and then read the poem.
4: The title of the poem is Willapa Bay, and that's the place where I wrote the poem, It was an artist residency where I was for four weeks. It's this gorgeous bay right on the, I think it's the westernmost point of Washington State. It's really far out there. It's so quiet, really was just such a great place to just be and connect with nature. I would just, you know, take my notebook out and just go on different walks every day, just sort of put myself somewhere and take the notebook and the pen and I just kind of wait you know to see what will happen. And so I really just sat and I was listening to the sounds of the seagrass, which is such an amazing sound. And I guess it was the image of the moon that was the first thing. I tipped my head to match the angle of the moon, as though my ear could pull a tide from myself. And it must have been as evening was sort of slowly coming on and just looking at the moon and just seeing the moon on this angle. I think I literally probably tilted my head and just was like, Oh, me and the moon, we're at the same angle now. You know, and I just had this like little moment. The inner wave is calm, but broils below. With the gratitude, I'm careful not to drown in. Immediate feeling of the gratitude of being part of nature, but then also like, I'm careful not to drown in because suddenly it brings me to that also underlying place of fear and grief and the sense that we're losing these things. When we get to the section, how can I walk away from this place? How can I walk away when I'm choked with the voice of the mother, parched from reciting the list of the dead? What do I do when I leave? How can I walk away when I'm choked with the voice of the mother? I just feel this urgency that things are being lost. And then we get to sort of the apocalyptic
5: moment of the poem,
4: (laughs) Where else can we go with this? Well, why don't we just let the animals come and take over the house? Come, come, beasts of earth, in your armies of fur and horn, let your bodies rage us down. That brings me comfort. I mean, I hope humans will survive. I think, you know, like I'm rooting for us, but I'm also rooting for the rest of nature. But then of course, the poem ends with really wanting to hold on to this sense of this is our place too and like we can be here, let me stay, let me go, I'm the earth's, And then just sort of reaching out, cry, cry, crows on the shore, what have you heard? What have you seen? You start at looking outward at nature, it goes inward goes through this whole process, and then it's, like, again, kind of going outward again at the end and just sort of, like, okay, crows, like, tell me. Tell me your story so that I'll know what to do next. a Bay. The three-quarter moon is tipped in the sky, still sleeping. Seagrass bristles, fulfilling its duty to the wind. I tip my head to match the angle of the moon, as though my ear could pull a tide from myself. The inner wave is calm, but broils below with a gratitude I'm careful not to drown in. What to do with it? Wind, weeds, water, earth. Now I know why they call you mother, how the tall grass waves in all our languages. Goodbye, hello, help us, help. How even when we go, how living is nothing but a flutter of wings. The wind's one note catches in the branches of the great Sitka spruce with an effortless acceptance that opens some bowl in me to that sound. How can I walk away from this place that traces sky, mountain, water, wind in one seamless line? How can I walk away when I'm choked with the voice of the mother, parched from reciting the list of the dead? How can I walk away when the perfect horizon is killing me with a crazed love? Let me stay, let me stay. Let the cougar stalk, let the black bear roam. Come, come, beasts of earth, in your armies of fur and horn, let your bodies rage us down make your nests in the abandoned house by the bay raid the fridge ruffle up the beds let the land grab begin we are not sorry we are over let me stay let me go i'm the earths i am wild from the future's howl cry cry crows on the shore what have you heard what have you seen Tell me what the bay said when you insisted. Tell me where you've hidden the bones in the field.
1: That was Hilla Ratzabi reading the poem Willapa Bay. It appears in her book of poetry, There Are Still Woods, published by June Road Press.
0: Learn more about Hilla Ratsabi at her website, hillaratzabi.com. Hilla is spelled H-I-L-A, and Ratsabi is R-A-T-Z-A-B-I. HillaRatsabi.com. Special thanks to Clara Fang for introducing us to Hilla and her poetry.
1: If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact us at radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Now, it's time for the Resilience Corner.
5: Hi, I'm Tamara Staton, TCL's Education and Resilience Coordinator, and this is the Resilience Corner I wanna do everything that I can to see that you have what you need to stay strong and steady in the important climate work that you're doing. Last month in the corner, we reviewed five key steps to deepening resilience. We then took a deeper look at the fourth step, practice. This leaves us with the last step to discuss today, repeating these five steps regularly. As mammals with malleable neural networks, repetition trains our brain, It helps us learn, grow, and improve. Our neural networks are like a big field of tall grass. When you walk once to the other side, the grass rebounds relatively quickly. But if you walk that same path again and again, it becomes the easiest path to take, the one that offers the least resistance. It might be hard to notice your thoughts, feelings, or internal experiences when you first start to try. It might also be hard to remember to notice but with intentional repetition, it gets easier. Notice, accept, seek help, and practice. Notice, accept, seek help, and practice. Sometimes, however, we follow a particular path that doesn't actually bring us to where we wanna go, but we stay on this path because it feels easier than blazing a new one. This is what learning and progress is all about though, starting new pathways. So it's not just about repetition, about doing the same thing over and over. It's about checking in with ourselves as we notice, accept, seek help, and practice to see how we might fine-tune and improve things. And often, through observation and consideration, we see new opportunities. It can also be really helpful to lean on resources outside of our own perspectives. Our newly redesigned resilience resources page on CCL Community would be a great place to start. New ideas mix things up for our brain and help us create new pathways that we couldn't visualize before. And this is key, because we need you and your deep commitment to a livable planet Earth. I'm Tamara Staten with The Resilience Corner. I thank you for being here and for your commitment to progress. To learn more about tools, trainings, and resources for deepening resilience, check out our Resilience Hub at cclusa.org forward slash resilience. From there, you can also access and share Resilience Corner videos with friends and family who might be interested. And until next month, remember this. You are strong. You are resilient. And you've got what it takes to make good things happen.
0: Thank you, Tamra. This series of yours, these five steps, have been so rich, and I hope you will continue to come on the show to share more with us. So Lila, as part of the Citizens Climate Radio team, I'm off to Washington, D.C. for the Conservative Climate Leadership Conference. It's March 28th and 29th, 2023 in Washington, D.C. At the conference, I will get to interview right-leaning CCLers, eco-right leaders, and I'll get to hear from members of Congress. Registration is still open, and if you, listener, are right of center and concerned about climate change, consider being part of this historic event. For more information and registration details, visit cclusa.org slash conservative conference, or you can just Google conservative climate conference. You'll find it.
1: And if you wanna be part of one of the largest bipartisan climate gatherings in America, come to Washington, DC. The Citizens Climate International Conference and Mobby Day will be held June 10th to June 13th, 2023. The Citizens Climate Conference includes everything you'll need to power up your climate advocacy. This year, you'll get to put everything you learn to use when you meet with members of Congress on Capitol Hill and talk to them about climate change. Registration is open now until May 21st. To learn more and register, visit cclusa.org forward slash June Conference. That's cclusa.org slash June Conference. Can't wait to see you there.
0: Thank you for joining Lila and me for this episode of Citizens Climate Radio. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we want you to be effective in the climate work you do. So we provide training, local group meetings, and many resources. In fact, Lila is part of a special intern training program. You've been here, what, like five weeks and you're already co-hosting?
1: Oh, yeah. It's fun and just a little terrifying. (laughs) The Citizens Climate Education Training Programs are designed to help you build the confidence and skills needed to pursue climate solutions. Find out how you can learn, grow, and connect with others who are engaged in meaningful work. Visit cclusa.org.
0: Special thanks to the members of our advisory board, Tamara Staten, Maggie Stenbach, Katie Zakreski, Sharon Baglattel, Kaylee Roach, Solemi Hernandez, Hannah Rogers, Sean Degg, and Brett Sees.
1: Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by Peterson Toscano, Ruth Abraham, and me, Lila Powell. Woohoo!
0: Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt-More Toronto, Flannery Winchester, Katie Zerkreski, Saida Nakfi, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Perra. To see our show notes, links to our guests, and a full transcript, visit cclusa.org.
1: Citizens' Climate Radio is a project of Citizens' Climate Education.